This is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. It is also not an offer to sell or purchase EdgePoint investment funds. Good afternoon, and welcome to the EdgePoint Fixed Income Webinar. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Patrick Farmer, and I'll be the moderator for today. We will be hearing from Frank Mullen, Portfolio Manager and Head of the Fixed Income Team at EdgePoint, as well as Derek Skomorowski, Portfolio Manager. Also on the call and joining us for the Q&A session will be investment analysts Tracy Chen and Stephen Lowe. Frank and Derek are planning to speak for 30 minutes in total, and then we'll answer your questions for an additional 30 minutes. If you'd like to submit a question, please use the Q&A tab on the bottom right of the screen, attention all panelists. <clears throat> I would now like to turn the call over to Frank Mullen. Thank you, Patrick. Good afternoon. Um, welcome to the call, everyone. As Patrick said, uh, my name is Frank Mullen, and today my partner Derek and I are going to walk through a presentation that we think is timely. We've had over 700 people register for this call today, so I think they must agree that now is a crucial time for investors to take a closer look at what they're doing with their fixed income holdings. And it's been an easy time for them to overlook fixed income in the past, but I think everyone on this call is aware that environment seems to be changing right now. So we'll quickly do an agenda. Um, we're gonna start by discussing what's changing in the environment and why investors need to be thinking about it. Fixed income has traditionally been what most people rely on to be either calm during a storm, but today it is actually what's causing the storm. We're gonna move on to talk about how EdgePoint can help. What are EdgePoint solutions to guide you through this storm? We recently launched the new monthly income portfolio, and we now have an additional tool that um, we think can help clients navigate through a time period of great uncertainty. We're gonna move on to discuss why it's essential clients understand what they own, and we're gonna try and demystify an asset class that we think most end investors often misunderstand. And then finally, we're gonna talk about um, that although the environment presents risks, it also presents great opportunity. And we think we're positioned in a unique way to capitalize on this opportunity. And most people you hear talk about fixed income today talk about the pessimism they have. And we actually think it's a great time to be looking at your fixed income. So like Patrick said, the plan is to keep our remarks at about 30 minutes and then have plenty of times for questions. So let's dive in and get things started. Uh, really, we have three goals at EdgePoint and they drive all of our important decisions. And the first goal that is our most important is investment results at the top of our peer group over a 10-year time frame. We believe that an investment company should be driven by its investment results. And what we have up on this chart is what we're trying to prevent. Our goal is to help clients ensure that they never experience a lost decade like we're showing here. And the chart's pretty scary because it shows six different time periods over 120 years where a 60-40 balanced portfolio, that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds, has had a lost decade. Zero performance over 10 years, a pretty hard pill for most end clients to swallow. And you see, recent history has made it easy for investors to actively debate what they're going to do on the equity side of their portfolios, and then just simply assume that fixed income is going to make them money and kind of forget about it. And I can't really blame people. Bonds have had a tremendous tailwind for an entire generation of investors. Like, let's be honest, my entire career, as well as Derek's and the rest of my team, has been during a time period where interest rates have really only gone down. And the same can be said for almost everyone on this call. But as interest rates have trended lower, they've driven bond prices higher, providing a significant source of return. 
But that tailwind from rising rates has reversed quickly this year, and it's waking investors up from their complacency. And I think they should ask, why have lost decades happened? Well, they've happened, what we've shown here in the chart is at the bottom, is that they're always the result of overpaying. Overpaying for stocks is shown by the uh, PE ratio, overpaying for bonds shown by really uh, low yields. And despite the fact that yields have gone up today, we are still in an environment of negative real yields. For those paying attention, yesterday we printed our CPI number of 8.5%. There is not a developed market government bond around the world yielding that high, so we still have negative real yields. I firmly believe that investing the same way you did for the last 30 years has a very limited chance of success going forward. And it's because the majority of the Canadian bond industry is built around copying an index that has a relatively long duration. That was great positioning for the past 30 years. But ask yourself, what if it's tailwind that's been such a great benefit becomes a headwind? That's why we think now is a great time to challenge how your fixed income portfolios are positioned and to ensure that you're not investing simply by looking in the rearview mirror. So we're only into April. We've only had one quarter in the fiscal year, and we've already experienced unprecedented uncertainty. Events that nobody was talking about have happened. And I'm not going to read them all here because everyone's just experienced it and we're still in the middle of all of them. But who would have guessed we'd be witnessing the first ground war in Europe in decades? Who would have thought one of the largest cities in the world was locking people in their homes and shutting down a huge economy? Was anyone talking about how supply chains would wreak havoc six months ago? Or that an energy crisis would lead to a food shortage? These are huge important topics and they all are happening at once, which is why we call the presentation the perfect storm. During times of uncertainty, investors have been led to believe they can always rely on fixed income as a source of comfort. That is not the case this year. Fixed income is actually the cause of their discomfort. What I've shown here is the Canadian Fixed Income Index. And we keep talking about the index because it's a very influential benchmark for most people in the industry. And what I've shown here is the record drawdown that we're currently in the midst of. We've been warning our clients for years that index duration has climbed as yields have fallen, and it was exposing clients to a risk that would be very hard to dig themselves out of. And this chart is that warning coming to fruition. This is the largest drawdown in the index history, and it's the largest by a large margin. Now, why does that happen? We've talked about one of the factors before, a willingness to extend duration. And that really is just managers reaching for yield. You can see I've shown the duration here in that uh, gray line. And it's still, despite what's happened with rates, it entered 2022 with a duration not far off its all-time highs, right around eight years. And the second is the fact that yields are still low. It feels like they've won a great deal and they have in a short period of time. But at 2.4%, it is still very difficult to earn your way to the loss that some people are experiencing this year. Now, our crystal ball is just as foggy as everybody else's. We didn't start the year thinking that 10-year rates would rise 120, 130 basis points. We did, however, try to limit our exposure to an environment like the one we're experiencing today. And we did that because we didn't think you were getting paid to take that duration risk. And that's something we have been good at at Edgepoint's history, making sure we only take risks when we understand them and, crucially, when we get paid to take them. In this business, you can't avoid risk. You have to make sure you take smart risks, and that means getting compensated for them. So that's something that's been consistent across all the portfolios at Edgepoint. And now when we talk about our fixed income, we have four portfolios that are included in the conversation. The longest standing funds is the one in the middle, which would be our growth and income portfolio, Edgepoint's version of a balanced fund. Now, I wanted to keep this chart concise, so I only included the global balance, but we also have a Canadian balance portfolio as well. Um, and that is our active equity portfolios coupled with our active fixed income portfolios. 
Now, a lot of people view a balanced fund as simply an active equity portfolio with an index type fixed income portfolio attached to it. We don't, nothing could be further from the truth. We try to be just as active in the fixed income side of our portfolio as the equity side. We want to adjust our equity and fixed income allocations best based on where we see the best risk adjusted returns, as well as our allocation between investment grade and high yield bonds and any other part of the capital structure we find attractive. And take a look at the right hand side. There you'll see the variable income portfolio. Now we just hit our four year anniversary last month. And so far we're pleased with how the portfolio is progressing. It was our belief when we launched it and it still is that in a low rate world, clients still need a way for their fixed income to earn a return. And we believe that if we run an unconstrained credit portfolio properly, that we could achieve equity-like returns by taking lower risk. Now we're only four years into that journey and we hope it's a 10 and it's a 10 year goal, like I said, but we like the direction that we're headed in and clients have been pleased with that performance. On the left-hand side, you'll see the Edgepoint monthly income portfolio. This is the newest portfolio at Edgepoint launching uh, in November of last year. And we launched it because we had clients continually asking us for a solution to that market standard, the standard long duration bond fund that looks more or less like an index. And we knew we had an investment approach that would provide an alternative to that. But what we wanted to do was find a novel way to give clients a head start because rates are too low. Now this portfolio is low risk. It's our most defensive fixed income offering. And I've shown on the chart today how it's positioned. It's got 20% government bonds, just over 70% investment grade bonds, and a relatively limited uh, allocation to high yield right now at only 6%. And it was our belief that rather than taking on more risk to try and earn a superior return, we could simply charge less. A pretty novel concept. So we came up with the fee schedule that you see in the chart. And we believe it's the only fund in Canada to do this. The fee is variable. And it's variable based on the yield of the Canadian fixed income benchmark. When yields are low, we only get paid a small amount. That helps our clients net return. It puts more money into their pocket and also allows us to avoid taking undue risk. But as yields increase, our fees rise accordingly. But importantly, they top out at a level that we believe is still below the industry average. We made the choice this year, and this is really important, to cap our fee for all of 2022 at 10 basis points. That's right. You can buy this portfolio for the rest of 2022 and only pay 10 basis points for the F-Series. And that's because we believe fees matter and they matter even more in a low rate world. So we structured this portfolio to give clients the head start that we believe they deserve in this environment. So the monthly income portfolio, like I said, was launched in November, just as rates were starting to climb. And I think it's valid for people on this call to ask the question, do we have the worst timing ever? And it's appropriate. What I can say is that we're never gonna be able to time the market. Edgepoint has a history of launching portfolios into periods of uncertainty and we're never gonna have the ability to call the bottom. So if the portfolios suffer from short-term declines, it's, uh, it's actually been a common theme at Edgepoint. But what that doesn't mean is that the reasons they were created for aren't valid, they are. We didn't start a portfolio because we could think that we could manufacture a good three-month return. We started the portfolio because we thought we could outperform over the long-term. And our history has proven that we have a skill set to do that. So what's the proof? Well, you don't have to look further than the creation of Edgepoint. It was launched November 2008. Most people hear that date and they say, oh, what an opportune time to launch a portfolio. What they don't remember is that by early March of the next year, the global portfolio was down almost 10%. A tough way to start a portfolio. But we used that volatility to our advantage and the resulting long-term track record was very pleasing. The same can be said just two years ago when we launched Go West, our energy-focused portfolio. 
we looked at the energy market and said, you know what, now is a great time to buy assets that were outright hated. Nobody loved energy two years ago, a much different environment than today. What happened after we launched it? A fight between OPEC and then a global pandemic caused our hated stocks to be outright revolting. But again, we use the volatility to our advantage and we have a track record that now clients are very pleased with. The fear that the average fixed income investor is experiencing today creates opportunity. And although it may not feel like it, the last three months has been a good time to run a portfolio that has half the duration of the index. We aim to provide an alternative to the average fixed income fund out there, and our performance has shown that. But what is crucial to understand now is that the long-term return expectations for the monthly income portfolio are higher today than they were at the beginning of the year. The rise in interest rates that we've seen actually make you better off if you have a long-term investment horizon and trust the manager's approach. And I'm gonna walk through some numbers to highlight that in just a minute. So in summary, we now have four fixed income solutions for clients that we think are superior to common alternatives in Canada. We have a higher yield in all of our funds as shown today than the index by focusing on what we do best, which is bottom-up credit analysis. And we also take lower interest rate risk. And anyone who owns something that looks like an index, which is a great deal of the Canadian fixed income category, as well as balanced funds, should be giving these solutions a long, hard look. So nothing really is more uncomfortable than experiencing what I'm showing on this chart. Watching the price of something you own go down can be a very uncomfortable experience. And what I've shown here is some of the largest fixed income benchmarks in Canada. We've got the broad market index, an investment grade index, as well as a high yield index. And as you can see, they've all struggled in a very short time period. And it's especially uncomfortable if as an owner of these products, you don't actually know what you own. And that's a funny thing to say, but unfortunately, our industry is capitalized on investor complacency by disclosing less and less each year. And that makes it difficult to understand what's actually going on inside a portfolio. And what's going on is important. The why is important because the why helps you understand if you've suffered a permanent loss of capital or are they simply mark to market changes? The why will help you understand if you can make that negative return back. Now, we pride ourselves on keeping things simple at Edgepoint. We have one consistent investment approach across all of our portfolios. When we buy a stock, we're simply valuing a business. When we buy a bond, we're simply lending money to that business. Everything we do starts with valuing the underlying cash flows or the assets of a business. We rely on our own work, not that of Moody's or S&P. We have nothing against the rating agencies except that they're backward looking. We need to find a business whose future is improving. And if we do that well, we'll have a collection of businesses that are overpaying us for a brighter future. We think our flexibility that we structured in all of our portfolios is important so that we can invest across the capital structure. Those of you that know us know we have a history of going into loans, investing in bonds, converts, prefs. Everywhere we can invest is investable to us. And we also work together as one team. And that really separates us from a lot of investment firms. Sometimes businesses are equity investments that we're studying. Sometimes they're fixed income investments. But the team works together to generate insights across the capital structure. And that's helped us uncover fixed income ideas that were unique and off the beaten path. So let's do a test. After this call, open up an annual report of your favorite fixed income portfolio and ask yourself, how many pages does it have? Does it have thousands of holdings? Does it have a geographic diversification in countries that you wouldn't dare vacation in? Is it chock full of acronyms that you need a legend to decipher? Lower interest rates have done a funny thing. They've caused managers to increase the complexity of the average fixed income portfolio. 
then go to our website and open ours. You'll see names of rock solid North American businesses, many of which you use in your everyday life. And why does that matter? It matters because if you understand what you own, we can help you ensure your clients don't do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Many have never experienced a negative return on the fixed income holdings before. They're going to open a statement for the first time in their investment careers and see a negative fixed income return. And that will shock a lot of them. And we know what the average investor does when they're shocked. They want to sell. That could be the right answer, but it might not be. The only way to distinguish is that is to understand what it means for your go forward return. So let's walk through that with a bit of math, because I think there's some interesting takeaways from this slide. What, what I've shown here is uh, the fixed income sleeve of our global growth and income portfolio. That's the fixed income sleeve of our balance fund. And today, that yield, uh, that portfolio yields 3.6%. Okay? If nothing else changes in the world, your goal for return is scenario one. Over the next five years, you will earn pretty easy 3.6%. The world never stays the same. So let's think about a scenario that most fixed income investors fear. Let's think of a scenario where rates rise 200 basis points tomorrow. That would be scary for most, but is that fear justified? Well, let's take a look at what happened. The decrease will cause your decline in your mark to market on day one. And we've shown that here by a negative 4.1% return on day one. And that math is just driven by your duration. Admittingly, that is a very uncomfortable result, but you should take comfort in the second part of the chart. The increase in rates means that all of your coupons and your maturities are gonna come into the portfolio and be reinvested at higher yields because rates have gone up. The opportunity set on a go forward basis is actually superior. And look, this portfolio is better off in just over two years. Everyone on this call can have a longer term time frame than that. If you've not locked in a loss and you trust how your manager is handling the situation and their investment approach, you are better off. We can help your clients earn a better return and it's quite material in only five years, 4.7% versus 3.6. Now what's shocking to most is that's not the case for the index. The higher duration makes their mark-to-market -market decline more severe, and you can see that they're at minus 11.6, but what often gets missed is it limits their ability to reinvest. A portfolio with index-like stats would take over 10 years to, make, to be better off from increasing the interest rates. 10 years. How many clients are willing to wait that long for their supposed safe part of their portfolio? Knowing what you own can give you the confidence to endure this storm and ensure that your portfolio managers are taking advantage of what's happening from rising interest rates. Now, I'm not going to go through the math for each of our portfolios, but I'll leave you with this stat. The monthly income portfolio is our longest duration portfolio at Edgepoint at just over four years. 15% of the bonds in that portfolio are maturing in less than two years. That gives us a huge advantage over the index in this environment. It allows us to redeploy all that capital into what are now higher yielding investments. Now, last thing I'm gonna talk about before I talk, pass it off to Derek is the actions that we take during time periods of volatility, time periods like right now. When there are shocks to a market, investors make irrational choices. It's human nature. It happens time and time again. But their irrationality is our opportunity. There have been three time periods in Edgepoint's history, and I've shown them here, 08, 16, and 2020, when we've experienced excessive volatility in our fixed income portfolios. And each time we used our flexibility and our approach to capitalize on it. This chart shows the benefit from those time periods. Easiest way to look at it is probably, let's take the middle one, 2016. And I'll walk through the illustration here. 
At the end of 2015, an investor would be looking at the fixed income sleeve of their balance fund and say, the yield of maturity is 3.35. Most people would think that's a good proxy for the return if the world stays the same. Of course, that rarely happens. In that year, volatility reared its head and drove the portfolio to a short-term decline. But during those periods, we reallocated where we are invested to more attractive ideas. And those actions drove the returns you see on the right-hand side of the chart. So take a look at the one-year number. Someone hoping they would earn 3.35% earned 12. That happened because of the decisions that we made and because of our flexibility. The drawdown enabled us to achieve a five-year return that's shown there that was far in excess of what they were expecting, and it beat the index by a large margin. Today, higher rates are thought to be the enemy of fixed income portfolios, but they're causing volatility. If your portfolio is well positioned, just like in the example today, it proves that you can actually be better off. But you have to know what you own and you have to have confidence not to sell and miss out on the subsequent returns. Each one of the portfolios that I've described are positioned today to capitalize in exactly the type of environment that we're currently in. So I'm now gonna pass it over to Derek to go into a bit more detail um, with what we're doing in the fund. Great, thanks. Thanks, Frank. You know, I've I've been in this business coming up on 10 years now, and I think I've been saying since day one that investors of my generation were getting hosed compared to anyone that came into the business 10 or 20 years earlier because we've had 0% interest rates the entire time. And it is incredibly difficult to run a bond fund in a world where interest rates start at zero. It is my dream to run money in a world where interest rates start at 5% or even higher. It just makes it so much easier to make money for investors. As Frank mentioned, investors should want higher interest rates as long as they haven't locked themselves into these long duration bond portfolios. We have no idea where interest rates are gonna go. They might go higher from here or lower from here. We didn't know that they were gonna rise this year, but we knew that interest rates were at all time lows and wouldn't be forever. And that was a massive risk to the average investor given how they were positioned. But we were prepared for it. And you know that we were prepared for it because we've been yammering on about it for the past 13 years. We have no idea where interest rates are gonna go and we have no idea when the next bout of volatility is gonna rise. Um, but the fact is there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in market today, whether it's Ukraine, China, inflation rates. But the fact is we thrive in uncertainty and in, in actuality, we need it for our investment approach to be successful and to del deliver for you. We can flip to the next slide and uh, just show how we manage money through what was the most uncertain uh, period in certainly my career and likely Frank's as well. Uh, which was the COVID-19 pandemic right at the start of 2020. The way that we managed the portfolio, it depended on how we moved between high yield bonds and investment grade bonds within our balanced funds. And this chart highlights how we shifted around the asset allocation within those portfolios. On December 31st of 2019, we came into the year with 40% allocated to high yield with 60% investment grade. When we go through periods of volatility, those 60% allocated to investment grade bonds, that becomes our dry powder. It's the cash we use to redeploy more interesting opportunities in the high yield side of the fund. It doesn't look like a huge change with the weight moving from 40% to 43%, but re recall that the average value of the high yield bonds held in the fund had declined by 14% at that period, which means we actually owned 
we actually owned 30% more high yield bonds within those first three months of the year. That reallocation acts as the springboard of returns coming out of the volatility and we'll shift to the next slide. It's a slide that I've shown before and I certainly showed it last year. Um, the orange line again is the return profile of the fixed income securities within the balanced portfolios. The gray line that's not going anywhere is the index. And I do highlight on this chart and we highlighted last year as well, through the first 65 days of the COVID pandemic, our short duration caused us to underperform in a meaningful way. And we had a lot of questions come in about our positioning at the time. I don't need to tell you how that short duration is, is paying dividends today. More importantly, our ability to reallocate within the portfolios and take advantage of mispriced securities um, and the returns that we've generated coming out of it over a two-year period um, that has been terrible for the average fixed income investor um, was certainly worth the reward. I do want to say we have, again, no idea what interest rates are going to do from here. We have no idea when volatility is going to rear its, rear its head again. We do know that we couldn't be better prepared across our portfolios. We came into the year with 28% high yield allocation within our balance funds um, and 6% again with monthly income. If we do get volatility, we'll look to take advantage of it in the same way we did in this, this slide. Um, even more exciting, roughly 20% of both the balance funds and the edge point variable income portfolio today is sitting what, in what we effectively consider to be dry powder. We're looking at a market that's getting more interesting every single day and just licking our chops of getting to put that money to work um, in that market. This is not about timing the market. It's not about just blindly buying the dip. Things are dipping all the time that people should not be buying. It's about understanding what you own and seeing an opportunity when it's in front of you. And we can flip to the next slide and highlight. Once again, we are investing in businesses. We study businesses every single day. We invest in them when we have an idea about their future that others don't have. Every investment that has ever gone to zero had to decline by 20% first and whoever held it needed to make the decision whether that was a huge opportunity or if it was a mistake and a permanent loss. And when you own things like Russian debt or the Turkish lira and it loses half of its value, it is incredibly difficult to figure out if that's a permanent loss or a huge opportunity. Similarly, when you own 30 year government bonds and they lose 30% of their value and now yield two and a half percent, again, it is incredibly difficult to recognize whether that's an error or an incredible opportunity. There was all kinds of volatility again in March of 2020, you don't see securities move around like this very often. The point of this slide is to highlight that sometimes the market gives you incredible opportunities. And if you understand what you own, it is easy to see those opportunities. Every single one of the bonds on this chart through the pandemic, the early days of 2020, as much as those bonds were down, each one of these businesses was benefiting from the environment. I'll say that again, they were benefiting from the environment and look at how much these securities had declined. All you needed to do was a little bit of work to understand it. Alcana listed at the top, it's the largest independent liquor retailer in Alberta. When people could not go to restaurants and bars to get their beer, they went to the liquor store, obviously, and spent that money and their sales were up 15% year over year in the period. Liberty Interactive is the owner of QVC and the home shopping network uh, in the US, they've never had higher customer engagement than they had 
when people were working from home or you have Vista Outdoor shown at the bottom, they make uh, ski goggles, bike helmets, and out outdoor uh, cooking equipment. Again, business that had huge tailwinds during the pandemic, profitability was up 32% year over year. Each one of these was an obvious uh, opportunity. L Brands is listed here, and maybe we'll flip to the next slide. L Brands is a unique example, again, of how when you go through periods of volatility, as much as it is painful when you're going through it, if you understand what you own, you can add tremendous value. L Brands is the owner of the Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works store banners. Um, it, as you can see, we started buying these bonds, yielding 7.7% in October of 2018. When the pandemic hit, everyone looked at L Brands and they saw a mall-based retailer at a time when malls were closed. They were correct. What we saw, however, when we looked at the business was a business that absolutely dominates women's lingerie and is creating a whole new market with their faster growing banner selling specialty hand soaps and sanitizers. Hand soap and sanitizer in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously their stores were closed and, and, and store sales declined, but it's like people forgot about e-commerce. And the whole point is their online sales through the pandemic, again, selling hand soaps and sanitizers were up 190%. The bonds were yielding 14. It just didn't make any sense. You get opportunities like this rarely in your life to make a meaningful investment um, with that kind of clarity in, in the future value of a company. But again, it gave us the opportunity to double our position in a company we knew, we knew was doing extraordinarily well. Within 12 months, when the, or when, when the market recognized that this company was having the most profitable year in its history, the, the bonds went from yielding 14% to 4%. We reduced our position by half at that time. We still have a small sliver today, uh, yielding 4%. It's effectively on its way to investment grade. I showed some very volatile bonds in the, in the previous two charts, only to highlight some of the opportunities that we're seeing all the time in the portfolios. By no means should you walk away thinking that the end product is, is as volatile as those individual ideas. Things are moving around in the portfolio, but the bias of returns and fixed income always is strongly to the upside. This highlights the return experience of, of investors, again, in the fixed income securities within our balanced por portfolios, given different periods of time. The worst ever one-year return for someone who held the fixed income securities in our balance funds, again, is negative 3.3%. Negative 3.3% for the worst ever negative one-year return. More importantly, it's important to highlight that as investors extend their investment horizon, just as Frank mentioned, they are reducing the possibility or the probability of having an adverse outcome or experiencing a negative return. So extending out your investment horizon is beneficial to the overall risk. We've talked a lot about the uncertainty that we see in market. Again, you can list them off, Ukraine, China, supply chains, inflation, labor, you talk about, you, you, we all know the uncertainties that exist. There's no better way to capitalize on that uncertainty in our minds than the edge point variable income portfolio. This is our version of a high yield fund, um, but we have the added flexibility to go absolutely anywhere we want um, across the capital structure. Our firm expectation for this portfolio is that it will compete over the long term with any equity portfolio that you have, but offer a diversified return or certainly a return that looks different from 
other or from comparable equity funds that you might be investing in. I think it'll go down less in times of volatility, but more importantly, it'll deliver a positive return in those three, five, 10 year periods where equities don't. And they do exist. We haven't had one in a while, but those are the periods where you're going to want to own something different. People think of high yield bonds or junk bonds as uh, debt owed to a bunch of crummy companies. That couldn't be further from the truth. We have three of the top five uh, holdings listed in this slide. Uh, we're the largest shareholder. We own 20% of, of all three of them. So again, businesses that we know well and have a lot of conviction in, and yet we're lending money to them at, at very attractive uh, rates of return. Finally, as much as it's a small fund, it should we should point out we benefit a lot. Um, the $250 million edge point variable income portfolio benefits a lot from the $3 billion pool of capital we have in our balance funds, where we lead deals and work directly with company to create companies to create price and structure each individual bond issue. All five of these issues, uh, we effectively led the order. We worked directly with the company, as I said, in bringing these to market. It's a huge advantage that we have with this portfolio. I mentioned that we we'll always start with high yield um, in, in, in our asset sort of allocation within edge point variable income, but we can go anywhere and you see it on the slide. Convertible bonds, preferred shares, or term loans. As, th as those asset classes become more attractive, we can go there as well. And one worth calling out is convertible bonds. Um, because it's been such a tailwind to returns for us over the past year and a half. Um, again, these are businesses where you can invest or securities where you can invest with effectively the downside protection of a, a traditional debt instrument. So you're getting the interest payment. You have a principal maturity where you're going to get your money back, but you also have conversion optionality if the business does well and the stock price appreciates. I would point out the returns on the right-hand side of the chart, far exceeding the initial yield to maturity that we were investing at when we bought these securities. Um, it's a great example of how uh, the yield to maturity on the edge point variable income portfolio can dramatically understate uh, the return potential that we, we see from these investments. As we see other opportunities, again, in term loans, preferred shares, we can make them a more significant weight in the portfolio as well. Once again, we find some mispricings there. One more slide I want to highlight on the variable income portfolio. We talked about how investors should want higher interest rates, particularly short-term fixed income investors, but nowhere is that more true than with high yield bonds because of their high interest payments and the short time to maturity. Um, you're getting a lot of principal payments coming into the portfolio. A lot of your return comes from reinvestment and you want those reinvested proceeds to be reinvested at a higher and higher rate. This slide shows, again, how unsensitive high yield bonds have been historically to periods of rising rates, and it just compares the return of the high yield index relative to investment grade bonds or 10-year treasuries. If we go through an extended period of time where interest rates are going higher, and it's a drag on PE multiples and equities are performing weak, it could very well be that high yield bonds within a portfolio are the area or are the ballast, let's call it, that are delivering your positive return. To summarize, this is one more chart that I wanna show just to summarize or reiterate something that Frank said about the fixed income portfolios that we still have at Edgepoint or we have at Edgepoint. We've always had a very simple shelf, let's call it product shelf, um, and it's gonna stay that way. We didn't wanna overwhelm anyone with two new funds. I guess we grew the, the shelf by 50%. However, 
Um, we think that we are meeting all of investors' need from, needs from the fixed income standpoint or fixed income perspective at this point. The, the, the fund in the middle is, again, our balanced portfolios. We've been managing those for 13 years. We haven't changed our approach and we won't be changing it. Um, it's been a very pleasing experience. The monthly income portfolio we launched in November of 2021 because, as Frank said, we thought that clients were taking unacceptable risk in their fixed income portfolios to generate an unacceptably low future return. And we think that we can take our approach, apply our same approach, offer a solution that takes less risk, higher return, and we're doing it at the lowest fee in the industry. The variable income portfolio, we launched that portfolio in March of 2018, and we launched that one to make money for our investment partners. Um, people ask us about allocating across the different portfolios or how they should think about uh, positioning each with clients. I think it's worth visiting the Symbria annual report if you haven't done it already. Ty and Jeff wrote a lot about this idea that um, the key to investing is to recognize that it's all about minimizing uh, future regret. And so if you think about it, 5, 10, 15 years from now, we all get to look back and regret all of the decisions that we made in investing. Even if we make a boatload of money, we're just going to regret that we hadn't bought more. But by far the biggest regret that you can have, that we can have, is not to meet our investment objectives. It's what Ty describes as the risk of running out of money before you die. People ask us about GICs, and I cannot imagine a way I try to explain this to my mom. I cannot imagine a way to increase the risk of running out of money than hiding in GICs over the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's just not the best thing that you can be doing to get yourself to point B. I think monthly income for the people that need it is a significantly better alternative to generate real returns and again, help people get to point B than what you would get from something like a GIC. But by far, for investors with a long enough time horizon, as much as it might be more volatile in the short term, by far, if you want to minimize future regret, the edge point variable income portfolio is the place to be, and that's where I have uh, my money. We'll go to the last slide, and I'll summarize this quickly before we move into Q&A. In the past year, things have changed a lot. But investors still have a big problem. They're taking way more risk than they understand in their fixed income portfolios. And it's just not going to help them get to point B. Investors in EdgePoint's fixed income portfolios should want higher interest rates. Each day that interest rates move higher, as much as it's painful in the short term, it is improving the prospects for your future return. If we do go through a period of volatility, Recognize that that is an opportunity, especially if you understand what you own. We're business analysts. We're investing in businesses. When the market is falling apart next time, look out your window and see all the businesses that continue to succeed and understand that you're invested in that kind of success. And finally, the fixed income portfolios that we have available at EdgePoint, they're applying the same approach we've always had in other areas of the capital structure. We have always said, that we benefit from uncertainty. Un uncertainty is the lifeblood of our approach, and we are incredibly excited for the opportunities that lie ahead. So I'll pass it back to Patrick.
All right. Well, thank you, uh, Derek, and thank you, Frank. Can we get all the cameras turned on? There we go. Excellent. We're going to start the Q&A session. Uh, just a reminder that the, the Q&A tab on the bottom right, uh, attention all panelists, we'll get the questions into us. I want to start with a question from Steve. Given the almost guaranteed interest rate hikes in the next couple of months, including the 50 basis points today, should we therefore expect a further decline in the value of EPMIP, albeit less than the index? And if so, why would you not change the strategy in the very near term to, to an avoid an almost certain decline? Frank, I'll, you can, I'll let you allocate. Sure. Well, Tracy does the majority of our uh, fixed income trading, so she has her pulse on the market and what's pricing in. So, Tracy, why don't you take that one? Sure. Um, that's a great question. And really, like you said, uh, rate hike expectations are high in the market. So, to be specific, in Canada, the market is currently pricing in 6.6 .6 additional hikes before the end of this year after today's 50 beeps hike. So it's just how people quote it. Each hike means 25 beeps up. So this translates to another 1.65% rate increase. It's pretty much similar stories in the US. So your question, why are we still holding bonds if the rates were to go up that much and wouldn't the bonds be doomed to have negative return? So the answer is the market is always forward looking. Um, so those hikes, have already been priced in, and it's already showing in the bond price today. So for example, Bank of Canada raised overnight rate 50 bps today, but this has already been priced in in the market. And in fact, the rates dropped three to four bps today um, as of now. So it is the rate expectation that matters. Um, going forward, if the market sentiment changes, Fed signals you know, more aggressive tightening, the rates could go further up and a bond price could uh, could go further down. However, um, if inflation situation eases, you know, Fed switches its hawkish tone, sentiment changes to the opposite direction, the expectation on the rates could go down and we could see a very positive return. So um, the simple answer is all these rate expectations have been baked in, in today's bond price. And you know the year-to-day negative return is in fact a, a result of that. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tracy. I think it's worth highlighting too that, like in our call this time last year, no one asked a question about rising rates. It, it wasn't a scenario that anyone could envision. It wasn't being talked about. It wasn't priced in anywhere. Same way today, people just assume that rates are going to go up with certainty. Well, there certainly is a scenario where we have a more uh, a uh, recessionary type environment where rates do decline and we need to be there and prepared to take advantage of that if it does happen. Frank, I guess you started with uh, a comment that you didn't really know at the beginning of the year whether rates were going to rise or not. and But you did say you started the, the fund, the MIP, with a duration that's roughly half the index. Um, what is the approach to managing that duration? Uh, is it always going to be half the index or or can it change? And that's okay. for Craig. It's a great question. So the monthly income portfolio is our portfolio that has the longest duration. And beca it's because we want that portfolio to be um, a replacement for the defensive part of a client's fixed income portfolio. 
And um, I've seen a couple questions in the Q&A here where people are saying, okay, well, during time periods of volatility in the equity market, we need a portfolio that could benefit from potential rate increases so they can take their fixed income would rise in price and uh, they could take that capital and allocate into an equity portfolio. There was one of those in the, the Q&As. Um, so that is why the monthly income portfolio has a longer duration, because we understand that clients like to construct a portion of their fixed income portfolio to be a ballast for their equity, to be a diversifier. Um, that duration won't always be half the index, though. Um, we, we have what we call a dynamic duration policy. And that basically means is that as the index's yield has gone up over time, or not the indexes, as interest rates have gone up over time at different points in the curve that we look at, um, our duration will actually increase a bit. And we do that because every time the rate goes up, um, the benefit that we would get from rates falling back in a more recessionary type environment, if rates did in fact fall in that environment, would be amplified. Um, so if rates continue to go up, you should see our duration creep up as they have at four at the beginning of the year. Right now, they're just over 4.1. And um, if rates keep rising, that duration will rise and then vice versa. If rates begin to fall, we want to take off some of that exposure to the potential falling in interest rates. So um, we dynamically try and uh, change the duration of the portfolio based on the prevailing uh, curve. I would just I want to add to that real quickly, Frank. Um, I think the implication is that... Uh, Historically, the 60-40 portfolio, the risk parity portfolio, the assumption was always that in time periods where equities are falling, interest rates are declining, it's a deflationary bust and bond, bond prices are, are appreciating. But Frank's opening comments on the call pointed out that um, this is a pretty unique time period in that it looks like a, a big driver or a cause of, of the weakness in equity markets has been rising rates or the threat of inflation. It is absolutely worthwhile uh, thinking about whether we really think that these eight-year duration bond portfolios are going to continue to do well every time it, equities are doing poorly if we are indeed entering an, uh, an environment where interest rates are going higher. Interest rates are a discounting mechanism for everything. Interest rates going higher could push long-dated bond prices down um, and drag equities down with them. In, in my mind or in our minds, um, the way that we think about our fixed income is that we don't want that exposure. We indeed want our investment grade bonds to be available for us to redeploy as dry powder in times of volatility. And that is part of the reasoning behind how we positioned the portfolios. MIP, I think we, our expectation is that people are using that portfolio in times of volatility to redeploy in other areas um, as well. We would not be surprised to see that as well. I think that is a perfect fit for people that are managing cash in the short term. Okay, thanks, Derek. Uh, along the same lines, this is from James, in, in that interest rates rise, bond prices go down, clients get upset. If clients begin to notice that their fixed income allocations are suddenly losing money quickly, and indices and closet index bond funds get dumped, is Edgepoint exposed to these securities? Maybe a better way to ask the question is what's the portfolio's active share versus the benchmark? I'm not sure you, we calculate that on the fixed income side, Frank, but uh, over to you. So it's, it's going to be different across all the portfolios. Um, the monthly income portfolio um, has the highest number of securities and probably is the one that looks at that people compare to a benchmark uh, most commonly. Um, the FTSE benchmark index in Canada has over 13,000 bonds in it. Um, we have 80. Our active share we calculated just before uh, a meeting we did last week was uh, approaching 90%. Um, the active share in the balance funds would be much higher because they're more concentrated. 
and the active share in the variable income portfolio. Um, <clears throat> I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it, it would be far in excess of 90%. It looks absolutely nothing like the index. So I think you bring up a good point that um, we that during a period of volatility, index type products will be sold. That is our opportunity to try and dig through that rubble and try and find what is most attractive and add to that portfolio. And, and like we said many times in the call, every single one of our four portfolios at Edgepoint has a short enough duration where we have dry powder and cash-like securities through maturities and coupons that we could reinvest into that environment, just something that looks more attractive. Okay. Um, Josh has got a question that I think is interesting. Is floating rate debt, uh, with interest rates rising, is floating rate debt a, a good opportunity uh, to insulate oneself? Okay, yeah, really good question. Um, floating rate debt often refers, or a lot of floating rate debt funds have levered loans in them. Uh, that's a market that Stephen knows really well. So why don't I pass it over to Stephen to answer that question? Thanks, Frank. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like uh, when I think about floating rate debt, I'm thinking about levered loans, and you know, it, it's worth thinking about you know the levered loan market, um, which over the last couple of years has grown a lot, and a lot of that's been due to the increase in private equity using levered loans to fund their leveraged buyouts. Um, because of the increased appetite for these loans, uh, the private equity issuers have been able to use this market to decrease uh, you know, coupon rates, like what the interest expense uh, for their companies, and they've been able to issue at increasingly uh, less uh, lower covenants, uh, so less protection for in for lenders. Um, because of this, you know, like the a lot of these leveraged loans ended up becoming deals that could not get funded in the traditional bond market. So there's a lot more risk uh, in some of these areas than, than you would initially think when you're thinking about uh, just buying a floating rate product. Um, it's also you know, interesting to think about you know, the, the very reason why someone would wanna own a floating rate uh, debt is because of you know, the increase in, in return in this kind of environment. And that's the very reason that could drive a lot of these uh, issuers um, due to the floating rate uh, towards increased distress and uh, defaults because of the lack of interest coverage that a lot of these issuers now have. Um, so with that being said, you know, it's, it's, it's a more challenging market, but it's not one that we have been unable to find opportunities and we've still been looking for opportunities in, in the leveraged loan market. And an example would be uh, an investment we made last year into a loan of a business called Sequa Corporation, which is a aftermarket supplier of aerospace parts. It's a business that fell on hard times a couple of years ago and had to go back to its lenders, tightened its covenants, uh, increase the coupon that's being paid out to the lenders. And it was at a point that we thought it was an inflection in the business um, where earnings were growing a lot faster than what the market was uh, appreciating. So that, that was an example of an opportunity where you know, we were able to go into this market. It was a little bit of a challenged uh, situation, but still find an opportunity that we thought was attractive for our investors. So. A uh, tough market, but still be able to find a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities in it uh, once we dig a little bit deeper. Okay, um, you mentioned leveraged loans as it related to to uh, uh, to uh, floating rate, but I, I thought I heard private debt. So there's a question from Peter. Private debt is a very big topic in the financial community. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on the space? And uh, I assume EPVIP would be the only fund that we'd have that would 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 invest in that if we do invest in that yeah okay <laughs> really topical question um 
Derek and I have this conversation all the time about private debt. It's been very topical in Canada for uh, some very well publicized private debt issues. So why don't I pass it to Derek and uh, I'll, I'll follow up at the end. So we'll we'll have our debate live on camera. No, it's a uh, listen. I yeah, we have mixed uh, feelings about private debt. We we were asked about it recently about an, from a uh, institutional client. Um, why is everybody so gung ho about private debt these days? We, the best example that we have is um, we lent money to a company, Livingston International, a great little company. It's a customs broker brokerage business um, that basically help companies get their products across the customs line, just help them uh, clear customs. It's a, it's effectively an annuity on trade between the U.S. and that company was taken private um, in summer of 2019, so right before COVID. Um, by a private equity company. And if you know anything about private equity companies, they are not shy about the amount of debt they're willing to put on a business. We knew that going in. We were familiar with this business. We had conviction that it was a, a strong enough company that it would be fine, um, whatever environment it went through. Um, so we lent money to it despite the high level of debt. Sure enough, nine months later, we get hit by a pandemic. Uh, they're not, they, they're a resilient business, uh, but they're not immune, as you can imagine, trade between the Canada and US, particularly manufacturing trade, went down and the, the company was somewhat worse off than it was when we first made the investment. The bonds languished, the company was, again, performing decently well, but leverage was already high going into it. And the bonds were, again, sort of languishing after trading down at hovering around 90 cents on the dollar. And a year later, we get a phone call from the agent who was Citibank, um, they say, Hey, these bonds that are trading at 90 cents that no one wants to touch, they're getting refinanced out at par. And not only are they getting refinanced out at par, they're getting refinanced at a lower rate. And there's actually cash going out the door as a dividend to the sponsor because they were able to raise more money than they needed just to refinance the debt stack. And it makes you wonder, okay, who is dumb enough to lend to a worse off company at a lower rate with more debt to fund the sponsor a dividend to take money off the table from this investment that they had made? And the answer is obviously a private debt fund. So what's going on with private debt? Well, they've raised boatloads and boatloads of capital and now they need to put it to work. And the fact is that companies don't borrow in private debt unless they've gone to all other alternatives and that is the last man standing. They're the last offer available to them. And so, again, what, why do people invest in private debt? The one attractive thing they have going for them is that the price of their investments don't move. So there's no volatility. It makes people feel good. Just because the price isn't moving doesn't mean the value of the investment isn't moving. And I think we've seen a couple of times now in Canada that something that's quoted at 100 cents on the dollar um, isn't worth 100 cents on the dollar. We get all the advantages of private debt with how we run our funds. I walked through the Edgepoint Variable Income Portfolio. There are nice things about private debt in that you get to work directly with companies, structuring deals, pricing deals, bringing deals to issue. Um, again, we get those same benefits working closely with companies in leading bond transactions in Canada um, with the added benefit that they, they trade every day. And so we can sell them or buy them um, amongst other investors. So we're getting all the benefits, but we don't see it as a great asset class necessarily to be in. There's a lot of fraud going on. 
Okay. Tag on to the end, just your last part, Patrick, is, is the variable income portfolio the only portfolio at EdgePoint that could invest in private debt? Uh, that is correct. Uh, we would not have private securities in the balance funds or in MIP. Uh, MIP has very limited exposure to high yield, especially, uh, and could not buy private debt. Um, I will add that VIP has purchased uh, or, or lent money directly to two different companies in its history. Um, and rather than being the lender of last resort, um, Derek said we like to kind of leverage the relationships that we built with the bigger edge point machine. Um, they were actually companies that we had known were looking to raise equity. Um, but because we had relationships with the business, we thought that a loan might make more sense than diluting shareholders with equity. Uh, so we did that with Paul Seismic. Uh, they have since repaid us and we made a 10% IRR on that. It was a great business that we understood. Uh, and we've done it right now. We currently hold a loan to something called Redline, which is a publicly traded TSX company that makes uh, ruggedized telecom equipment. And um, they actually needed to invest in R&D in order to receive R&D tax credits from the government. And uh, we helped fund that. Um, so it was more of a working capital loan. Um, but there is a key difference between our approach to private debt and what Derek described. These are generally publicly traded companies, generally have years of audited financials, and generally have a relationship with someone at EdgePoint before we'd ever look at it. And, and here's a question from Patrick, being me. Um, are you able to structure the deals favorably with based on that relationship? I mean, yeah, that would be a big advantage. It's a huge advantage. Like everyone talks about coupon when they talk about debt, and that's just what you're going to get paid. Just as important, if not more important, is how you structure downside protection. So do you have an actual lien on the asset? What are the covenants? What happens during a time period of workout? Um, structuring covenants is something we can do directly with issuers when we lend the money uh, privately, um, which actually decreases our downside risk and is something that we can do across all the portfolios at EdgePoint when we lead deals. So when we looked at doing the Shawcore deal or the Cineplex deal or the Optiva deal, um, our bigger ticket size allowed us to take a leadership role and insert covenants that would not have been there in any broadly syndicated uh, type of high yield bond or a levered loan. Um, so using EdgePoint's broad resources as a whole allows us to negotiate not only better coupons, but better downside protection through covenants. And the other thing that I would really quickly just add to that is once we are working with a company on launching a deal, the interesting thing about Canada is a lot of investors won't look at a deal until they know that it has an anchor order. Um, we'll work, we're large enough again to work with these businesses and be the largest ticket to be the anchor order before a lot of these deals. And so we can negotiate our allocation up front. Um, other fund companies in Canada, smaller fund companies especially, really it becomes a food fight and they need to fight for an allocation at the where the deal is pricing. And we again, because of our larger size, get get the full allocation. Uh, question from Ed and, uh, and Bill, um, the allocation inside, the fixed income allocation inside the four funds, you got investment grade, you've got high yield. Is it similar across the four products or is it overly complicated? Um, it, it's similar and we're in the fact that we're attracted to the same businesses and that it's the, all the same investment approach. Um, that being said, the investments that we think are appropriate for MIP, which again, we've said is the most defensive portfolio that today only has 6% high yield, maxes out at 20% high yield. So in a time period when we are thinking high yield is the most attractive it's ever been, so call it during the depths of COVID, it could only ever get up to 20%. The next layer of that is we also don't think that, um, we, we think it should be lower risk high yield. 
Um, so we, we can, we don't just segment things investment grade and high yield. We segment them in terms of the amount of leverage they are, how high of a quality of a business it has, what is the asset coverage? So our higher quality high yield ideas would migrate into MIP. Um, the balance funds would be a mix in the variable income portfolio. Um, is smaller. It's only $250 million. It's super flexible. It's unconstrained. Um, that's where we put ideas that, um, may not be appropriate for an MIP or for a balance fund investment, um, simply because the balance funds would be too big, but we're able to utilize the flexibility that variable income portfolio has to make it a core position in something. That's good. Okay, Greg, his question's been up there for a bit. Uh, I utilize fixed income to rebalance into a weak stock market. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are suggesting buy and hold the fixed income. I can't do that as I require the fixed income portion to prop up stocks in a falling stock environment. When stock positions become overweight, I add back to the fixed income. Do these products work for that strategy? It's a great question. Uh, why don't I take it? Um, listen, it, it's different for each portfolio. Uh, the balanced portfolios, one of the benefits that a lot of clients see is that we can do that allocation between equity and fixed income and then within the different segments of fixed income. So um, we, we take that off your plate. The variable income portfolio, you should not use as a diversifier in that in a recessionary type of environment, you want to use that as a source of capital. No, we actually think the variable income portfolio um, is superior to equities in some, port, in some time periods and being a recessionary time period would be one of those time frames. The fund that I think would be most appropriate and why we launched it that for what you're looking for would be the monthly income portfolio. Um, we are not suggesting, we would love you to buy and hold that forever, but it has a duration of four like we've described because during time periods of volatility, um, depending on what that volatility is doing, historically rates have gone down. And if rates go down, uh, we want investors in that portfolio to see a benefit from that rate decline. And um, that would be the portfolio that is most that we think is most appropriate to use for what uh, he described. Okay. Um, I've got a question from Jim here. Um, high yield debt tends to be highly correlated with equities. Would spreads not blow out in a recessionary environment? Yep, I, I think we've ran the correlation. High yield debt has correlation to the S&P, correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, is somewhere around half. Um, so, so it is positively correlated in um, during a recessionary time period spreads would blow out, but that spread blowout is what gives us the opportunity to reallocate within all the portfolios. I think Derek put it well when he talked about short term investment grades and cash being the dry powder that we would use to invest in an environment where spreads blew out. I think he also walked through how the balance funds have more cash to have as dry powder than they have at any other time period and edge point. The variable income portfolio has uh, high teens to 20% short-term investment grades and cash that it could use as dry powder. And then if we're going to go to the monthly income portfolio, it only has 6% of its portfolio in, uh, in high yield bonds right now. So the correlation to the rest of the portfolio would be relatively muted. And that was done on purpose. We do not think high yield spreads are overly attractive in general right now, which is why you see the high yield allocation in all of our portfolios at relatively low weights. A follow-up question, and I see one there from uh, from William is, well, is that a statement about how attractive the variable income portfolio is right now? Um, I do not think it is. If the variable income portfolio was $10 billion, I think it would be a statement, but the variable income is not. 
Um, it is small, it is flexible, and it can do things that the other portfolios cannot. So I don't think that you should say that our low allocation to high yield is a um, sign for how attractive we think that portfolio is. Because that portfolio, despite its large cash weight, still has some very core weights in it that we've led that we think have very attractive yields that could provide a pleasing return as well as have all that dry powder to reallocate into an environment that becomes more volatile. Okay. Uh, a qu uh, question from Ed. Um, Derek, I think you, you touched on this, but maybe uh, maybe fill in the blanks. How different do you expect the return experience to be between monthly income and variable income? I know it's big, potentially big, but can you quantify that in any way? Well, I, I mean, again, I think it would, it'll be, um, extremely different is it um if you if you look historically just at the the return i guess that came from um the balance portfolio since inception um we've done roughly seven a little over seven percent pretty close to seven and a half percent roughly four and a half of that four and a half percent was the return that you received from the investment grade bonds high yield bonds did over 12. um again high yield bonds are highly correlated to equities but they also perform very much competitively um, with equities. So when you think about that split in, in MIP, where we're going into the current period with a 6% allocation to high yield, and we wouldn't go over 20, the return, um, return go forward, um, um, will be significantly more modest than just standalone high yield to go after real returns over time. You want to own the, um, variable income portfolio. Part of the value add that we're adding with the monthly income is to take risk at the appropriate time to try to um, mitigate some of the volatility. We're taking the volatility in, in variable income, but you, you're paid for it as well over time. You're, you're going to go many years where you don't have a meaningful drawdown in high yield. It, it will still deliver a very attractive return, but we're trying to avoid the drawdown in monthly income. So we're not getting paid in years prior to that as much. Yeah, I got 306 on the clock. We started at uh, 2. I'm going to I'm going to give us one more question from a Zach. Uh, and it's, you know, they, I think it's interesting. I think maybe the average person may not know the difference between these things, but is a funds yield to maturity a valid indicator of potential future returns for a fixed income fund? I've seen other bond funds mention this, but it seems a yield to maturity being high could be the result of many factors such as a poorly positioned portfolio and not necessarily returns one should expect going forward. Did you have a thought on that, Frank? Okay. Um, it is an interesting question. The, so is a fund's yield to maturity a, a good roadmap for return expectations going forward? Um, I, I think it goes back to what my part of the presentation was trying to address, which is you have to understand what is what the manager is doing to achieve that yield to maturity. Okay, um, what risks are they taking? Because there's no free lunch in this world. Um, are they doing something that is just taking on in excessive risk and they're not getting paid a high enough yield for it? Or are they trying to do things unique, looking more off the beaten path and it's generating a high yield because um, there's structural difference why other investors can't be there. Um, so I, I think you need to dig in and I think you need to understand more of, of what's going on there. Um, like I said, our portfolios are all very transparent. You can take a look at all of our holdings and say, are these people taking excessive risks? Um, or are they doing something that they have an advantage doing and therefore that yield of maturity is appropriate for the risk they're taking? Uh, the second part that I would go is also something that I tried to address in it is that 
The yield to maturity is a great guide if you trust the approach for a go for a return, if you believe that nothing's going to change. Okay? And there are very few time periods since EdgePoint's history, and if you go through inception, where everything stays the same forever. So even in a relatively benign environment, we think there will always be ways to upgrade the portfolio, which is why we firmly believe that active management adds a tremendous amount of value in fixed income. Um, because there's more inefficiencies in fixed income. It doesn't trade on exchange, it's OTC. Um, so we think that even in a benign environment, we'll always be coming in, being able to find something that's a little bit more interesting than what we own and be able to upgrade it. So hopefully we can exceed it. Um, traditionally, as we talked about, periods of high volatility, is when we add the most value and when we far exceed that yield to maturity. And that should be coupled with time periods that are probably more benign where we earn that yield to maturity. Um, but when you combine the two, I think that's a recipe for really outperforming over the long term. Yeah. All right. That's great. Okay. I'm going to end the call uh, there. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to join us today. Questions that we did not get to, uh, we will answer them and the relationship manager will fire that back to you. Um, uh, let me just say, I think the current fixed income environment is very challenging and uh, it could become even more challenging going forward uh, in the months and years, potentially. I think Frank and Derek and the rest of the team have given us tremendous food for thought as you try to help your clients navigate these choppy waters. So thanks for that and, and thank you for joining us. Take care. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. This is not an endorsement or recommendation of any security. EdgePoint Investment Group may be buying or selling positions in securities mentioned. No endorsement of any third parties or their advice, opinions, information, products, or services is expressly given or implied by EdgePoint Investment Group. This contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance results, and the actual results or market developments may differ materially from these statements. The whole or any parts of this may not be reproduced, copied, transmitted, or disclosed to third parties without the consent of EdgePoint Investment Group.